If you're a Christian, you used to be in Adam. He represented you. But now you are in Christ and Christ represents you. Christ has replaced Adam as your representative. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part seven of his eight-part series titled The True and Better Adam. Last time, we saw how Christ surpasses Adam in his serving as the representative of all who are in Christ. How? Well, first, because Christ bought for you a limitless supply of grace instead of eternal judgment. Second, because Christ bought your justification for your sin instead of condemnation. And lastly, because Christ brings life instead of death. Today, Tom will continue to examine the incredibly rich truths found in Romans chapter 5. If you're a Christian, you used to be an Adam. Adam represented you. But if you're now in Christ, he has replaced Adam as your representative. Let's join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. Romans chapter 5. As I was thinking about the principle that's here in this passage we've discovered together, the principle of representation, this week I was reminded that one of the great joys of my life is my children. But I also remember that on the day my first daughter, Lauren, was born, in addition to that sense of overwhelming joy, and perhaps if you have children, you'll appreciate this, I also felt at the same time a sense of the weight of the responsibility that came with this newfound duty and joy. For the first time in my life, another person was entirely dependent on me for everything. Now, that sense of responsibility motivated me to do some things that I had not done before. Among those was that I drafted a will. And in that will, I designated, I appointed guardians for my daughter and have since kept that will up to date with guardians for my three girls. Now, think about that for a moment. Without any input from our newborn daughter, Sheila and I decided who would be her guardians. We chose, in the event of our death, death, who would represent us to her and who in turn would represent her to others. Of course, we asked the potential guardians first. I advise that. But nevertheless, we made this choice. And, and parents' right to choose guardians for their children is almost universally accepted. And yet, when children are very young, they get no say whatsoever in who will represent them, even though that appointed representative, that appointed guardian will make decisions on their behalf, and they will either enjoy the benefit of those good decisions, or they will suffer the consequences of those bad decisions. Now think about this. If it is legitimate for human parents to choose those who will represent their children, It is perfectly just for God to do the same for those who belong to Him by creation. And that is exactly what God has done. He has appointed representatives for the human race. For all of us, Adam, and for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, Christ as well. 
And it is this reality of representation that is Paul's point here in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 and running down through verse 21. Now let me remind you that this issue is not peripheral. But in fact, what we're studying together here in Romans 5 is at the very heart of the gospel. It is crucial to the gospel, and without this truth, there is no gospel. Because the principle of legal representation is the only legal basis for our justification. It is the only way that God can treat you as if you had lived the life of Jesus Christ and still be just. So, let me briefly review what we have discovered in this paragraph so far. The theme of these verses, simply put, is this. Jesus Christ is able to secure our justification because God appointed Him as our legal representative just as He did Adam in the garden. But before Paul explains how Christ represents us, he first then needs to explain how Adam did. And so he begins then with what is really the first part of this paragraph, and and I've called it Adam, our representative, how sin, condemnation, and death came to all men. That's the essence of verses 12 to 14, Adam, our representative. And he begins in verse 12 by explaining Adam's representation. Look at verse 12 with me. Again, we've studied this together. I just call it to your attention. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. In that verse, Paul explains the relationship between us and Adam and his sin and guilt. And we pulled out from that verse, really Paul makes four fundamental propositions about our relationship to Adam. Again, just to remind you of them, number one, sin entered the world through Adam. Number two, death entered the world through Adam's sin. The third proposition is death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. And then the fourth proposition, and really the heart of verse 12 is this, God credited the guilt of Adam's sin to all men. You and I are legally guilty before God for Adam's sin because God appointed Adam as our representative. He stood in our place. He acted on our behalf. He made decisions for you as your legal representative. And if you're tempted to say, that's not fair, let me remind you, we talked about this. Nothing could be more fair. He was in a perfect situation to make the right choice. You're not. In addition, each of us would have made exactly the same choice. And so it was perfectly fair of God to make Adam our representative. And that's exactly what he did. Now, as soon as Paul says at the end of verse 12, all sinned in Adam, he realized that that was as controversial a statement in his day as it is in ours. And so he immediately then defends that statement in verses 13 and 14. And he defends it this way. He says, just to prove to you that that's true, think about those people between Adam and Moses. They all died even though they didn't have the written law. In addition, even infants died even though they had not personally sinned. And yet, death is the penalty for sin. So why did those infants die? 
Why did those people who didn't have the written law die? And he says there's only one explanation. It's because they were counted guilty in Adam, and they got the sentence of death just like Adam did. That's how he defends it in verses 13 and 14. And again, I'm just catching us up to date. We've looked at all of this together. So that's Adam, our representative. The second part of this passage begins in verse 15 and runs down through verse 21, and it's Christ, our representative. How righteousness, justification, and life came to the many. And here's really the focus of this entire section. Now, last time, we looked then at how Christ surpasses Adam. You remember in verse 14, he finishes by saying, Adam is a type of Christ. And as soon as he says that, he realizes that could be misunderstood. I don't want, to, I don't want you to think of Christ and Adam on the same level. And so let me tell you how Christ surpasses Adam. If you look at verses 15 to 17, you'll see twice he says, not like much more. Not like much more. He wants us to know how Christ surpasses Adam. And last time we saw how Christ does surpass Adam in his representation of us. In verse 15, because Christ brought us grace instead of judgment. In verse 16, because Christ brought us justification for our many sins instead of condemnation for Adam's one sin. And then in verse 17, Christ surpasses Adam because he brought us life instead of death. Now that's where we left off last time. Today I want to finish this passage together. Let's read it together. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, having shown us in verses 15 to 17, the passage we looked at last time, how Christ surpasses Adam, Paul comes back to the heart of his argument to explain in the verses that we just read, particularly verses 18 and 19, how Christ replaces Adam. If you're a Christian, you used to be in Adam. He represented you. But now, you are in Christ, and Christ represents you. Christ has replaced Adam as your representative. Now, before we look at verses 18 and 19 together, let me just remind you of the flow of Paul's thought through this passage. It is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to follow. So I think it's important for me to remind you of what's really going on here. In verse 12, Paul begins to make his argument. But at the end of verse 12 in the NSB, there's a dash. Why is that? Because Paul interrupts himself. He, he interrupts himself, and then beginning in verse 13 down to verse 17, he addresses two parenthetical issues prompted by something he says. At the end of verse 12, he says, all sinned. So in verses 13 and 14, he deals with the question, what does all sinned mean? But at the end of that interruption... 
Notice in verse 14 at the end, he says, Adam is a type of Christ. He interrupts himself a second time to explain how Christ is better than Adam. They're not to be put on the same tier, on the same as peers of each other. That's verses 15 to 17. Now, once he finishes those, those interruptions, in verses 18 and 19 that we just read together, he completes his main argument. This is the thrust of the passage, verses 18 and 19. And then in verses 20 and 21, he finishes out by dealing briefly with the role of the law in God's plan of redemption. We'll talk about why he does that in a minute. So what I want you to see is that verses 18 and 19 are key. Paul here presents the main argument, the argument that he began back in verse 12 before he interrupted himself, and now he completes it. He states it in its entirety. Notice how verse 18 begins, so then. Here's, here is the result of what I'm talking about. Here is the conclusion. And he makes his conclusion, or he summarizes what he's teaching in the form of a comparison. Again, notice the key words in verses 18 and 19. As, even so, verse 18. Verse 19, as, even so. He's making a comparison. And specifically, he's comparing how God thinks of us and how God treats us now that we're in Christ compared to when we were in Adam. So that's the comparison he's making. So Paul first reminds us then that God now treats us, God responds to us, he treats us in a way in keeping with Christ's actions. That's now. But before he gets to now, he, he goes back and reminds us to before. Before, when we were in Adam, here's how God treated us. He condemned us, and that resulted in the sentence of death. This is how God treated us when we were still in Adam, when Adam was our representative. Notice the first part of verse 18. So then, consequently, let me summarize my argument for you, he says, as through one transgression, that is Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation, and of course that condemnation led to death, the sentence of death, to all men. Now notice the progression of what Paul says. He says, first of all, I want you to remember Adam committed one sin. What was that transgression? What was that sin? He ate of the forbidden fruit. And that one transgression resulted in God's condemnation. Remember the word condemnation. We talked about this. It means a legal verdict of guilty. One act of sin brought the legal verdict of guilty, not only on Adam, but on all Adam represented in the garden. And who's that? All of us, all mankind. That legal verdict of guilty on all of us resulted in a sentence, just like in a legal courtroom. And that sentence was what? Death. It was death. Death passed on every one of us. Notice verse 12. Death spread to all men. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. All of those Adam represented in the garden, every human being encountered the guilty verdict that Adam earned for us and the sentence Adam earned for us, which was death. What does that mean practically? It means every one of us in this room was born spiritually dead to God, without connection to God. We didn't know God. We weren't known by Him in, the, in an intimate relational sense. There was a distance, an alienation, Paul describes it in another place. That was the reality. So we were born spiritually dead, 
and we were born, I hate to tell you who are younger this, those of you who are older understand this, we were born with a decaying body that will eventually die. It's happening to every one of us. So spiritual death, eventually physical death, and if our circumstances remain unchanged by divine grace, we will endure what John the Apostle calls the second death, which is eternal suffering in hell. That's what we had in Adam. God treated us like Adam deserved to be treated because he was our representative. But that's no longer true for us who have repented and believed in Christ. Because Paul in the second half of verse 18 says, Now in Christ, now that we're in Christ, we have justification resulting in life. How can that be? Again, notice verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. That's how God treated us in Adam. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now God treats us like Jesus and His one act of righteousness deserve to be treated. Now what is this one act of righteousness? Clearly, He's talking about Christ, and He's talking about something Christ did, But what is the one act of righteousness? Well, there are two views of this, two options in terms of how biblical scholars land. Some would say this one act of righteousness refers solely to Christ's death on the cross. That's the one act of righteousness. They would point back, for example, to Romans chapter 3. Go back to Romans 3 verse 24, which says that we are justified, we're declared right with God as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 25, Paul focuses on one act, his public death as a propitiation, as a satisfaction of God's wrath in his blood. So in other words, they would say the one act of righteousness is Jesus' death for sins on the cross. And certainly no one would argue that that's not included. Everyone would say that's included. But there are those who say that's all that one act of righteousness means. There's a second view. Others would say that the one act of righteousness is Christ's entire life summarized, including His supreme act of obedience, His death on the cross. Now, there are good men on both sides of this issue. There are orthodox evangelical believers who take different views here. I lean toward the second because I think the evidence supports it. I would tend to go where John Murray goes. He says this, it was in the cross of Christ and the shedding of His blood, listen to this, that His obedience came to its climactic expression. But obedience comprehends the totality of the Father's will as fulfilled by Christ. You read the Gospels and again and again you hear Christ saying, I came to do the Father's will, and I have done it. You get to John 17, and just before his, his arrest and His crucifixion, He says, I have accomplished all that you gave me to do. He hasn't been crucified yet. Clearly, He came to do more than merely to be crucified. What we're really talking about here when we talk about the, the fullness of Jesus' life as His act of obedience is what theologians refer to by two names. The active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience of Christ. Now, those are not great labels because Christ didn't do anything passively. 
But it's trying to, it's trying to underscore two realities. Let, let me take those apart for you because I think that's what's being said here. First of all, when we talk about his active obedience, we're talking about Jesus obeying the precepts, all the precepts Scripture commands of the righteous. That's his active obedience. For 33 years, Jesus obeyed every command in Scripture that's given to the righteous. That's, by the way, this, this part of the ministry of Christ is why he couldn't just come down and do the Passion Week. That's why he needed to be here for 33 years, because he needed to live a full-orbed life, and in that life, fulfill everything God requires of the righteous. You say, does the Scripture teach this? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. Then he says this, born under the law. That is, Jesus was born with a responsibility to keep God's law. Why? In order that he might redeem those who are under the responsibility to keep God's law, but haven't. There's a connection between the work of Christ and his living under and obeying the work, or the, the commands of the law. Jesus himself was aware of this. You go to the early days of his ministry in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, and he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now think about this. This is a baptism of repentance. Jesus doesn't need to personally repent. And yet he shows up to be baptized, and John responds as you and I would respond and says, no, Lord, I need to be baptized by you. You, you don't need this. And what does Jesus say? He says, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was aware that in his life he needed to fulfill all righteousness on the behalf of us. Not only to earn the right to be the Redeemer, but to earn the righteousness that would one day be credited to us. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, we read, He learned obedience from the things which He suffered. That doesn't mean Jesus was at some point disobedient. It simply means he grew in his understanding and development in obedience as he matured through the things which he suffered in this life. This is his active obedience. Jesus obeyed all the commands of Scripture that you should have obeyed, but haven't. And he did so in your place. This is the active obedience of Christ. But then there's the passive obedience of Christ. By this we mean... Christ bore the penalty that Scripture demands for sin. This is the passive obedience. Again, it's not passive in the true sense. It simply means that he was receiving that penalty from God. In that sense, it was passive. But he accepted it freely and willingly. He, in obedience, agreed to bear the penalty for the sins of his people. Again, Scripture is clear on this front. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Luke 22, verse 42... Jesus is praying, and what does he say? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Don't misunderstand. Jesus isn't wimping out here on death. There are a lot of people who've gone to death as martyrs bravely. Jesus did as well. That's not what's going on here. What's the cup? The cup is the wrath of God, the separation from the Father that he'd never known. And he says, Lord, if there's a way for that not to happen, then remove this cup. And then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but what? Yours be done. In other words, he was obedient in bearing the sins of his people. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, we read, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when you read in verse 18 this one act of righteousness, or you read in verse 19 obedience, understand we're talking about the collective obedience of Jesus Christ, His life as an act of obedience. Those 33 years of perfection and His willingness to die for the sins of His people. Now go back to verse 18. What are the results of Christ's act of righteousness? Through one act of righteousness, that is in his entire life of both active and passive obedience, there resulted justification of life to all men. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, The True and Better Adam. Tom will have part eight for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Are you interested in attending the Master's Seminary? Countryside Bible Church is home to the Master's Seminary Dallas campus. Join Pastor Tom Pennington as he hosts the Master's Seminary Spring Preview Weekend, March 24th through the 27th at Countryside. You'll interact with Tom, attend seminary classes, and participate in the church life at Countryside. For more information and registration, go to thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You'll find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.